Welcome to Elk Shape Podcast, doing a surprise podcast. I kind of promised I would be off the grid, but some things happened and uh, life goes on, so I thought I'd sit down and record today a short episode, but maybe you're on the road to your elk hunt right now and need a little entertainment. I know that uh, I just drove to Nevada and it was a long drive and I I had a lot of music loaded to my phone, but I thought that podcast actually made the road trip go by faster. I could find myself laughing along with the podcast or just learning something. It was just much more interesting. So hopefully you're checking this out while you're heading to Elk Camp 2018. I'm Dan Staten. Uh, I'm the one that runs this Elk Shape program and Elk Shape lifestyle and just basically becoming the best version of yourself and utilizing elk hunting to promote discipline in other areas of your life and being a provider and being blue collar, do it yourself, not looking for a low road, paying a a landowner tag or, you know, maybe hiring a guide. Those things are not bad options, but my audience is probably more the guys that probably couldn't afford that. They just can afford to buy an elk tag and put gas in their truck and go so this one's for you guys so obviously i had a pretty sweet hunting season lined up and things have changed but i'm going to go through it real quick um i think i drew nevada with 12 points the only other non-resident that i met on the hunt had 18 in nevada once you draw you have to wait seven years before you put in again so it's it's probably not going to happen again. It's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime deal. So with that being said, I left my house about 3.30 in the morning on August 23rd. It was a Thursday. And I made it to where I first wanted to check out hunting and set camp at about 3.34 in the afternoon. So 12-hour drive. And... Coming along with me was a guy named Jacob Villasenor. He's on Instagram at primitive exposure he's actually supposed to do this podcast with me but he instead chose to go hunt washington elk and the backcountry so he needed to leave today i don't blame you jacob so jacob came down he uh, wanted to film he had filmed me before in nevada and well two years ago and he was very green two years ago so i was a little apprehensive but i can tell you Looking back, he's learned so much in the last couple of years. He was actually more of an asset for most of the time than anything. And I'll explain more, but he just, he was super helpful. And he's probably one of the best dudes I've ever met. And he's a young kid. He's like 24, but man, I have never met anyone who's just can hike as good as him and you know, he's not too slow in the mornings. He's a little slow, but not slow enough to where I get mad. And uh, he's a great guy, and he wants to film on his new Sony 4K camera. So, anyways, Jacob drove down separately because I told him I was heading to Wyoming right when the Nevada hunt was done. Nevada opened August 25th. It closed September 16th. I was prepared to stay all the way up until the 16th and try to kill a big bull since... It was a special tag, and then I was going to drive from Nevada over to Wyoming and meet up with my buddy Ryan Altis and hunt the rest of September for also giant bulls in an area that we spent 12 points drawing, or 11, I'm sorry, 11 points to draw. Anyway, so August 23rd, day one scouting, we went to the first place that we had checked out. It had a water hole. Actually, it had four or five water sources in a, in a, I don't know, probably a five, six square mile area. So, and all the water was pretty consolidated in this general area. So, and I talked to Dan Evans of Option Archery and he said a 400 inch bull got killed off one of the water holes and it was so hot and dry there that we threw the ground blind in the four-wheeler and drove straight to the first water hole. And it was a guzzler. Guzzlers kind of are gravity fed and uh, it's not like a water hole. It's kind of like a man-made device that traps water and the guzzler was like damn near dry, but it still had elk sign all over it. And in Nevada, people like, this is funny. So if you're a Nevada resident, I'm just, I'm just going to shoot you straight. I don't give a shit if you write your name in a little bottle and put it in your homemade brush blind over water saying 
your name, your number, and that you plan on hunting the entire season, August 25th through September 16th. I know and you know you're not going to sit that blind every waking minute of the hunt. And I didn't. I had found that on every waterhole I went to. Guys drive around, write their name in a bottle, and like claim their public land waterhole. And I don't like it. I'm going to shoot you straight. Like I kind of get there's some etiquette, but uh, the BLM rules that I've read, if you put a blind out, it's 10 days before the season, not any earlier, and you don't own that blind, and if you're not in it, anyone else can hunt it. Go look those rules up. They're right. There's a PDF. You can download it. So anyways, I'm going to go on a side tangent. But So there was fierce competition. So there was 50 non-resident tag holders and five non-resident tag holders in an area that had, I think, four or five units. It was – we weren't going to have tons of hunting pressure, but there was competition for water. So day one, we – we checked a couple other water holes. We got up on a ridge, glassed at night. We glassed up, I would say, somewhere around four bulls that night. Had a pretty good feeling. One bull grew a big six on one side and just a six-inch club on the other. He had a couple of tumors and growths hanging below his, his belly. And we didn't really know what was up with that. And then the very next morning, we went to the same general area but went higher, way higher, like as high as peak we could find, which was 8,000 feet, and just glassed all morning. And just saw a couple of bulls, no repeat bulls, but just a couple of rags. In fact, we did see another six-point bull who just grew on one side, the opposite side of the other bull. I don't know if that's a genetic thing or if they're injured or whatever, but these are like giant six points with nothing on the other side or just a club. Uh, so that was interesting. Day two of scouting, we went and covered a bunch more ground and checked out a few other areas, a few other water holes, set up a ground blind, and we were basically prepared to kind of hunt mornings like normal elk hunters, like put elk to bed and get close, uh, and then sit water in the afternoons and evenings. Not my favorite, but definitely effective. Opening morning rolled around. We got in up on a ridge, and we couldn't find elk. Nowhere to be found. A lot of the sign that we saw two days prior was gone. Um, there was a dude sitting the blind next to mine. So we rolled in there about 10, I think 10 o'clock in the morning. And we he came out of his blind um, and watched us break my blind down. And he was kind of like, what are you doing? And just told him, hey, man, pulling this blind out. It's all you. Enjoy. He was super nice about it. And... Uh, we drove back to camp, packed up camp, and drove uh, 130 miles that day uh, in my truck. And we also did a 30-mile loop on my four-wheeler and checked out a couple other areas. And we found a water hole that had the best elk sign ever. And it was on the side of the mountain that had no cover. So we assumed the elk were only going to hit this water in the evenings or in the mornings. And we figured the elk were traveling five or six miles to this water hole. Unfortunately, the water hole had one other water, one other spring on the other side of the ridge. And some hunters had already been sitting in that one. We ended up talking to those guys and telling them that we were putting a blind up. And they kind of gave us the down low that a lot of bulls were hitting these. And um, so we came back that night. And we were going to get in our ground blind, and we were glassing above our ground blind before we were walking in, and there was already four bulls parked 100 yards above our blind, just, you know, chewing their cud, waiting to come down and get water. So we didn't sit our blind. We just watched those bulls. And it was, you know, three rags and an a okay six-point, like a 300-inch six-point. And so we just watched that the rest of the night. But we were pretty excited about day three, we had a water hole that had elk hitting and no one else was on it and the ground blind was set and we brushed it in and we got up early and we drove to the ground blind and where we had picked to camp was about 12 miles from the ground blind, which was stupid. There was a better way to camp. So we got, uh, we got to the blind just at daybreak and the elk were already at the water. We had, should have been in the blind an hour earlier and it was a six point bull, probably like a 320 bull with about 12 cows and calves. And he bugled, and he raked a tree, and he did all these things while we sat about a half mile from our ground blind, just 
again, watching elk at the waterhole, but not being in the ground blind. Super frustrating. And we watched them feed up over the top of the mountain. And so we, we got into the blind and we sat that blind the rest of the entire day. That was our one full day sit in a blind. We had antelope come in. We had mule deer bucks and does. We had some raghorn bulls come in. So we were pretty stoked on that waterhole. Um, the next day, day four, by the way, we moved camp now. So this will be our third move. We moved camp so we could get closer to the waterhole, only two and a half mile drive on the four-wheeler. And the four-wheeler trails in Nevada suck. Everything's washed out. Everything's rutted out. And my poor four-wheeler, and I would say that there was a two-track trail on every ridge everywhere in the unit. Like there was hardly any roadless areas. That's really what we keyed on as cliche as it is, is we just tried to find areas where there weren't roads where people could drive their ATV or side-by-side or trucks through. So we got to the water hole extra early, pretty excited to shoot, hoping that herd would come in. And we sat there till about 11 a.m. and nothing came in. Then we hopped on the four-wheeler and we tried to figure out where the herd before the day before went. So we drove up over the top of the mountain and we're looking in about four or five mile direction in every direction and there is no cover. It is just grassy, rolling hill mountains and there is no place for an elk to bed in the 85 degree weather. So then we got extremely curious and spent the next couple of days only sitting the water hole in the morning and the evenings and kind of going five miles in every direction and finding juniper patches and glassing. That paid off big time. I'm going to fast forward to, I think, August 28th or 29th, one of the best days of elk hunting, one of the worst days of elk hunting. We got, uh, we sat the blind first hour and a half and then got out. I mean, we figured the elk, if they were going to be there, it'd be right at first light. They weren't there. We drove up over, went five miles to the nearest juniper patches on the side of a mountain, and we just glassed and glassed and glassed. Nothing and so then we th- I grabbed the bugle tube and just started throwing out cow calls and bugling. We figured we could get an elk to stand up and stare at, across the canyon at us. And kid you not, five minutes later, about a 330 bull stands up, walks out into the opening across the canyon, and is just staring in our direction. We put him to bed because he didn't come over. He didn't cross the canyon, but he, he hung out for a half hour, and then he went and rebedded in a place that we thought we could kill him. So we used our Onyx maps, dropped pins on the topography, studied it, got the wind right, did a big one-mile loop up and above and around, got to about 50 yards, and this is where we made a mistake. Um, I had Jake stay right there filming, and I took my uh, boots off and put on some stocking socks, and I went right towards where I dropped a pin. And I'm just going to fast forward. I basically was 26 yards away from a 330 bull where he didn't know it and I didn't know it. And the problem was is that he was buried in the junipers. And even if I had seen him, I wouldn't have been able to get a shot because he was so covered up by limbs and all that stuff. Well, I'm standing there, crouched down, glassing every little nook and cranny, and the bull finally sees me, and he just bolts. And I ended up walking over to his bed and ranging and I was 26 yards from this bull and never knew it so we we automatically said okay new tactic if if we can get the elk to stand up or we can see them put them to bed we're going to get in close and we're going to cow call and we're going to kill a bull that way so that's what we did the next day we got to the same glassing spot except for all the elk were already bedded at first light they had gone to bed in the dark and so we bugled and we got two or three different bulls to answer and we pinpointed where they were which juniper patches they were in did the same deal we did about a one mile loop actually a little bit longer this time got up high the wind was jamming uphill got in close to the juniper patch glassed up a cow glassed up another cow so i just snuck in as close to this patch as i could jacob was about 100 yards away he started calling you know cow calls some bugles we got that herd bull worked up he came to about 30 yards from me, but he wouldn't come out of the junipers. I could see his rack. He would rake trees. He would bugle, but he wouldn't come out of the junipers. And we did this song and dance for about an hour where I would just kind of move positions. And I started getting to the point where I knew that they couldn't see me if I couldn't see them. And I really got in tight in those junipers waiting to um, 
get a shot at this bull for him to poke out. And then we heard another bull bugling about 400 yards away. I look to my left, and here comes a beautiful 340-type bull, maybe 350, but 340 for sure, side-hilling and bugling his ass off as he's walking towards us in the wide-open, midday hot sun. The wind's going up, and this bull's taking an angle to where he's going to get my wind and ruin my setup on the herd bull. And so uh, at the time, I didn't know this was the same herd bull that we saw at water, but I did have an inclination that, that this was the only elk in the area. So the 340 bull eventually comes pretty close, and he's getting to the point where he's going to get my wind. So I just turn around, I leave the herd bull, and I go up the mountain about 300 yards so I can get a shot at this bull. This bull finally stops in an opening at 74 yards broadside, and the wind is howling pretty good. And so I had already fallen, by the way, and broke the bubble in my bow sight. So my bow sight had no bubble, which I am trained to to look at my bubble in my shot sequence. Um, this bull stand there 74 yards. I go to slide my slider, and the gear on my slider breaks. And so my slider stuck at home pin at 50. So I manually pushed my sight down to 74, which sucks to do when a bull's looking right at you. Got it to 74, pulled back, and the wind was just jamming. So I kind of held a little bit further back on the bull. Didn't have a very good break on my shot, meaning I kind of rushed it. And I watched the arrow soar right over his back at 74 yards. It would have hit perfect. He wheeled and ran back to the ridge that he came from and stood there in the opening looking at us. And I just went right back down to the herd bull and what told Jacob to keep calling. Um, got on my knees and I could see the herd bull at 30 yards. I could see his kneecaps, but I couldn't get a shot. By this time, the boy shot at and missed, seized Jake, stand up and walk over closer to me. And he starts barking. And now the entire herd gets up. And they don't know what's going on, but they don't like it, and they ended up bumping out. And what we ended up doing was we hiked all the way down to the four-wheeler, got up on the ridge, and we were just like, we're just going to go sit water for the rest of the day. We drove the six miles back to water, and we were on the ridge to drop down to our watering hole spring, and we see the same herd that we bumped heading towards our water. I kid you not. And we were like, holy crap, this, this is the herd. And they do really walk six miles to water every day. And so we were sprinting down to, like, and I mean literally sprinting down to our water hole, trying to beat the elk and get in the blind. We know they're coming to our water. And we're about 10 yards away from the blind. And Jacob says, oh, crap, get down. And I see that the cows are already staring at the water hole. And if we tried to get in the blind, they would have saw us. So we just lay on the ground in no cover. I'm going to fast forward really quick. Basically, the elk were super nervous. They thought something was up, but the herd bull was thirsty, so he just comes roaring right down the ridge, and he's coming to water, and he's about 16 yards away. Jacob's filming the whole thing, and I, I'm not going to throw Jacob under the bus. I'm going to give a couple reasons why, but Jacob says to me, draw. And I already knew that I wasn't going to draw until the bull had gone a little bit further so he wouldn't see me draw because I had no cover. And then, unbelievably, Jacob says it again like I thought, like he thought I didn't hear him or he thought I needed a coach to tell me when to draw. And he yells, draw, or he whispers, draw. And at that point, the bull, I believe, heard him and just whirled. Another option is that the bull could have smelled where we just had stepped and got our wind. And world, but either way, I hadn't pulled my bow back. The bull's 16 yards. He's at 320 herd bull. Going to shoot him on camera with a top pin, and he whirls. And he takes off running, and the whole herd does too. So I pull back, cow call, Jacob cow calls. The bull stops, and I have no, I'm already drawn. I have to guess his range. He's uphill on a steep angle, which I wish I would have realized. I guessed him for 45. I split my 40 and 50-yard pin, put it right on, basically right in the middle, and let it squeeze. Had a great break, and there goes the arrow. And the bull drops six inches minimum, and my arrow literally almost shaved his back, and he, I shot right over him, and they take off running. 
And what I realized is I should have shot him for about 40 and still aimed low. Just should have shaved about three or four yards due to the inclination, due to the horizontal distance, due to the fact that the bull was on full alert and that he dropped quite a bit like a whitetail. And then he ran away. Then we just sat there in silence after I kind of yelled at Jake to not tell me when to draw. And bless Jake's heart, he was only trying to help me out. But I had basically missed a 330 and a 320 bull all in the same day. And if we'd just been in our damn blind, we would have got this bull. So, oh man, the, we hunted that area for two more days doing kind of a similar program. Sit water for an hour, go up to the ridge, glass, the junipers. We kind of figured out their bedding area. Um, but we realized that we kind of boogered these out pretty good. So we pulled out and we checked out a brand new area that was in the desert flats. There was no terrain. It was just straight sage for miles. And we ended up finding a really big bull that was coming into private and going into public. And I'd ridden, I was using my Onyx hunt, and I forgot that you can actually hunt a couple of private properties. They sent an email to all the hunters that you could hunt this particular property. And I'd forgot about that because all the areas I'd drawn up weren't even near these properties. But we put this 370 bull to bed. And we, we realized he was on private, so I didn't go after him. And I just got a ground blind set up between his bedding and between that and the uh, meadows that he was hitting at night. And I sat that blind for a couple of days. And Jacob would be glassing from ridges. And we never did get that bull to, to pattern. So we pulled out went to town. By this time, it's August 30th. And I get cell phone service finally when I'm in town getting gas and everything and so we've moved camp I think this was our fourth or fifth move anyways we get into town and I get a call from my dad that my wife he wasn't supposed to tell me but Alicia had was Alicia's always doing projects at home Alicia is the hardest working woman ever I live in her shadow she is a fierce competitor and she's the hardest working woman and she's always doing projects on our fixer-upper house. And our house is really starting to come along. We're doing remodels on everything. And she had gotten for her birthday a brand new circular saw from her mom. And her dumbass basically cut through four of her fingers accidentally, obviously. Cutting through bone, nerve, s separating or uh, basically cutting all the way through tendons. She was bleeding everywhere. My dad had to rush over there and take her to the emergency room. She got stitches, and she had a con consult with the doctor the very next day, a surgeon, and he was like, you absolutely need surgery to reattach these tendons and try to get the nerves to grow back. And um, she's basically saying, hey, honey, this is all happening, and I really would love for you to come home. Now, I'm going to tell you, my wife has no clue about that I've been putting in for this hunt for 12 years. And that I'd been buying a non-resident hunting license in Nevada for 200 and something dollars every year. So that's over almost $2,500 of just buying a license so I can put in. And she has no clue that I that the tag is a $1,200 tag in Nevada and that I've been planning my whole year around these hunts. And so I told her, okay. I said, I will come home. I said, I will cancel my Wyoming hunt. But I am going to stay here for two more days see if I can get a bull killed, and then I will come home just in time for your surgery. So that's what we did. And we moved spots to our final camp. This was the sixth move into an area that we hadn't been, and we hit the mother load. We found some private ground surrounded by BLM. We found three or four Big herds with big bulls, 350 to 370 bulls with 30 to 40 cows per bull. And we got some tremendous footage, and we spent day, two days there trying to figure out what they were doing. And on the last day, I knew it was our last day. I knew Jake was leaving in the morning. I knew I needed to leave in the morning. I knew Alicia was having surgery on Wednesday. This was Monday. We got up super early. We head over to a high ridge to where we could hear where the elk, because the elk are bugling now. The elk are bugling crazy in the mornings. The cows, when there's that many cows, you can hear the cows. So we sat on this ridge and listened to about four different herds leave a private agri agricultural field. And each herd went their own way. 
And as it got light, we kind of like figured out where every herd went. And that's the beauty of Nevada where compared to where I hunt in Idaho where like you can only hear elk. You can never see them. But here we could glass and watch where they went. So we basically put four different herd bulls and their cows to bed. And we spent the entire day just going from one herd to the next, getting the wind right, hiking the four or five miles to the first herd, getting in tight, calling. We called in the first herd bull to about 60 yards. I couldn't get a shot. And then we pressured them, and we got in there, and we ended up getting busted by cows and calves, pretty much par for the course. We bumped them two miles. <clears throat> we watched where they went. We put, them, we put them to bed. We left them alone. We hiked another probably four or five miles into another herd and got them located, got the herd bull bulling, worked in tight, just about ready to like do the final setup. And two hikers, this older guy and gal, not wearing camel, just hiking in the middle of the desert, just talking to each other, loud voices, just walking through, end up bumping the herd as they're probably only 100 yards from us. And that herd bumped hard, and they went over a ridge that we couldn't see. So then we hiked all the way back to the four-wheeler, and by then we were probably just about at 15 miles for the morning, and Jake was out of water. So we had to drive all the way back to camp, get him rehydrated, and then we ended up driving all the way back to the herd that we were on first, and where they bumped, we got the wind right, we got in tight. By this time it was about 2 o'clock, and we were about... 300 yards away from the herd, and they're all bedded on this bench and junipers, and we're watching a lot of the cows get up out of their beds and have a midday snack. And that's when I saw the herd bull kind of get up and start checking some cows, and that's when I was like, all right, we're going to get in tight. So we used the topography and circled around and got in close. I set Jake up, and I said, this time you're just going to primarily bugle with a few cow calls and keep this bull talking, and I'm just going to sneak in and kill him. And that's what we did. Jacob got set up, got the got everybody kind of moving around and talking, and got this bull bugling. And he wasn't aggressive bugling, but he was definitely, like, still running around checking all his cows. He had, like, almost 30 cows. So somehow I skirted most of his cows and got into where I thought he was, and then I had cows and calves feeding by me, and then I had a group of cows and calves that he was on their ass, and they walked right by me at 70 yards, and he just happened to stop. I ranged him. The only thing sticking out was his shoulder, his vitals, and that was it. He was The rest of his body was covered up by brush. I could just see his rack sticking out. And by this time, I'd switched to my backup bow, which is a single-pin slider. Not my favorite when it comes to elk hunting because things happen fast. But at least this bow had a slider that worked and a bubble. Ranged him at 70, pulled back, and I had the best break I've had. I just, the shot felt perfect. Watched the arrow just slam into him. He ran straight forward 80 yards to a barbed wire fence that separated public from public because they do a lot of grazing out there. And he just stood at the fence for like probably 15, 20 minutes, hunched over, and I moved a little closer and threw my binos up and I could see my arrow sticking out both sides of him. And the arrow was, I'm going to tell you right now, it was about one inch too low. Somehow I just shot under his lungs. I don't know how I did it, but I hit him where the yellow meets the brown on their body, directly behind the shoulder, perfect shot, except for it wasn't perfect. It was like one inch too low. And I figured that was a pretty pretty bad shot as far as he's not going to die right away so i snuck into as close as i could get by this time all his cows are right with him so there's like literally 20 30 cows spread all over and they're looking in every direction and i keep getting them to stare at me and i range the bull and i pull back and he's at 70 and i just want to get another arrow in him and he sees something and he turns as i shot and the arrow was going right towards him, courting away. But when he turned, the arrow slammed right into his back ham. And it buried to the knock in the back of his ham. And he takes off, jumps the fence. When he jumps the fence, he breaks the arrow that was sticking out both sides in half. And the arrow comes out. He jumps the fence, 
goes about 80 yards and stops in the middle of a field. Now all his cows know something's up and they run up to the top of the ridge and they turn around and they're waiting for him and he's not coming. He's just laying there and I'm waiting for him to tip over. I'm like, dude, you got two arrows in you. You're going to bleed out. You're going to fall. You're going to bed down. 15 minutes goes by. I'm like, crap, I better put another arrow in him. So I sneak and basically crawl my way towards him in the middle of the wide open. And then I get to the only little tree and I stand up and range. He's at 92. Not my favorite shot distance, but I needed to get another arrow in him. So I slide to 92, pull back, level, and I got a great break. But I think he just was staring right at me and saw the shot. And he flinched just enough for that arrow to sail right over him. And by this time he had enough. He took off kind of running, injured, straight up the mountain to the cows and over the other side. Most guys would have backed out, but not me. This was my last day. I did not want to lose sight of this bull. I knew if I got to the top of the ridge, I could at least glass to see where they go. So that's what I did. Meanwhile, Jake probably at this point knows that something's up. He probably saw the arrow sticking out the back of the ham. And so he's probably realized that he probably thinks I only shot this bull once with an arrow just in the butt. He probably thinks I'm the worst. And so I ran up to the top of the mountain. And by this time, the bull was halfway from me to the cows, but he was hurting. And um, so I just went right after him. And when I got to about 60 yards, he sees me and he turns a sharp left to side hill and the cows keep going straight out the valley. So now I have him separated from his cows, which I felt like was a good thing. And he side-hilled the mountain, and I just basically was jogging along, keeping up with this bull, pressuring him pretty hard, and he knows that I'm trying to kill him, but I also know that he can't run and keep running. He's going to kneel. So we do this little one-mile jog where I'm about 100 yards above him, but I'm paralleling him and keeping up with an elk. And it's not because I'm super fit. It's just because I was super determined to kill this bull. He finally hits a patch of junipers, and I get up above them, and he never comes out of there. So then I realize, okay, he's bedded in the junipers. I just need to go in and dispatch him and finish this bull off. So I get on the radio, let Jake know the plan. Meanwhile, Jake is going back to the four-wheeler. He's going to ride around to where he can kind of glass and make sure that the bull doesn't slip out. I take my boots off, I sneak in, I glass, I see my lighted knock sticking out of his ass in a juniper. I get into about 30 yards and I can't get a shot. And the wind switches, he smells me, he gets up and moves down the mountain just maybe 50 yards into another juniper patch and now he's standing, staring right at me. And so I just started walking super slow to him and I was just got my pin set at 50 and I'm just going to shoot as soon as he clears and he finally just has enough and takes off running again, side-hilling, not going down, not going up, and he side-hills another mile into the next juniper patch. By this time, Jake's on the radio and saying, hey, man, um, I got him. He's, he's back in that next juniper patch. I told him I knew that. And then Jake gets on the radio and says, hey, he just left the juniper patch and dropped down into the creek into a huge alder patch. And I'm like, okay. I get down there. He's in an alder patch that's so tall. It's as tall as a house, and he's buried in there. And I'm 10 yards from him, and I can't get a shot. I can't even see his body. Well, he can hear me walking around. He's finally had enough. He takes off out of the juniper patch. I shoot. I miss. And he goes back uphill and gets to another fence where he stops. He can't jump this fence. So I run up there. And up there is probably 500 yards. I top out, and there he is. It's going to be a 30-yard shot, except for he's got a tree that he's behind, and I can't get a shot. So by now, I've shot in four arrows. I only have one arrow left in this tight spot quiver. And he's about to jump this fence, and there's a little hole in the branches, and I'm just like, I'm going to try to sneak one through there. It's my only chance. I shoot. Arrow deflects, the bull gets enough energy, jumps the fence, I have to back out. I walk all the way back to Jake, probably took an hour. I said, hey man, I'm out of arrows, we have to leave tomorrow, let's go back to camp, I'll reload, we'll back off, let this bull bed down. So that's what we did. 
We drove about 20 miles round trip to go to camp, get water, grab arrows, got it back. I knew I had about an hour at most of daylight. So, let's see. I had Jake set back up in his glassing spot, turn radios on, and I went right to that fence line, and I was just going to follow tracks now. And luckily for me, he really actually started bleeding really good from all the running, and so I could follow his track and confirm with a little bit of blood if I looked close enough. And I followed his track for probably 400 yards through some thick junipers and finally found him bedded away, quartering away from me. And the only thing that's sticking out was just a little bit of his shoulder. And so at 20 yards with him not knowing I was there, I pulled back, put that arrow right behind the shoulder, quartering away, which I should have shot further back, but that's hindsight, and drilled him. He gets up and starts running side hill. I see a lot of blood coming out of his shoulder onto his flank. I'm like, okay, he's done. Jake's watching him through the spotter, and Jake says, hey, he just side-heeled up over the mountain. I'm pretty sure you got him. There's so much blood. He's done. So I waited for Jake to hike over with my pack, my kill kit, Jake's pack, and I was just already thinking about how to get the meat out, which way to hike out, and we followed the bull's track and blood after uh, 20 minutes of Jake getting there, and there wasn't a ton of blood, but there was good tracks, and he was kind of side-hilling, and we followed him for, this is where it gets horrible, probably about a mile. He just side-hilled right around this mountain for a mile and then dropped down into a valley of sagebrush. And that's when we realized, oh, crap, I probably missed vitals again. He's got three arrows in him, no vitals. He's going to die, but... He's not going to die until we let him bleed out. What are we going to do? And I finally decided that I was just going to stay on him until we got him. And that's what we did. And so I'm going to fast forward pretty, but you can basically envision two guys on hands and knees with our backpacks and the camera tripod. And every time we found a fresh track, we would scour it for confirmation of a drip or a pinpoint of blood. That's what we got down to. So it took us two hours to go about 500 yards through the valley flat. And we would just put the tripod over the track with the nearest blood. And then we'd go look for the another track. And it was tough because there were a lot of elk there, a lot of moo cows. And so it was tough to find fresh track. And it was really hard to see the blood in that, on that kind of vegetation. Anyways, it was about 1130 at night with headlamps on when we got to the edge of kind of like this natural meadow and we looked across the meadow with our headlamps and realized okay water is only 500 yards away we looked at our tracker on onyx hunt this bull had done a big circle and now he had gone in a complete straight line he's headed for water and i said jake all right we can't trail tracks or blood in this meadow it'll be impossible we're going to take a straight line towards the water and we're going to just walk the water out. And the water would be, basically take us to a road where we could hike back to the four-wheeler and come back tomorrow. So we did the 500 yards. And I saw something green glowing in the water. And it was my bull. And it was incredible that he'd gone that far. And he had finally died in the water in this creek. And it was about 12 o'clock at night. So in Nevada, it gets... It's somewhere between 80 and almost 90 by 10 or 11 in the morning. I kid you not. But at night, especially in the creek bottom, it's, it gets down to 30 to 35 degrees by 11 o'clock. And I'm in a t-shirt, and we found this bull. We took a few photos. We didn't do a video recovery, and we just started working on the bull. And we worked on the bull for a couple hours. The two guys was real nice. We got every ounce of meat off that bull. We filled up every game bag that we had on us, and then some. And then we packed that bull out. We made it back to camp at 3.30 in the morning. And it was a pretty good feeling to be tagged out, knowing that I had to go home. He was a pretty decent herd bull. He probably was like the fifth or sixth biggest bull we saw on the entire trip. So he was a good bull, but we were literally hunting giants, and it was incredible. Um, I was super fortunate to be able to drive straight home, so went to bed at 3, well, probably 4 in the morning, woke up at 7.30, got camp packed up. 
our last and final camp and uh, drove straight to the nearest town, put one bag of ice in my Yeti 160 because all the meat filled that thing up. The meat was cool to the touch. We had deboned it all and drove 12 hours straight home and then took my wife um, to surgery and watched the kids. She came home from surgery in a lot of pain, but the doctor said this surgery was a huge success. I got a hold of Wyoming. I got a hold of my buddies. I let them know I wasn't coming. They're super heartbroken. And here I am now, September 7th, and I have this awesome Wyoming tag. Alicia's um, two days post-op, and she's hanging in there. But, man, with two kids, it's really tough to even make food, change a diaper, or even, I don't know, do anything normal like laundry or she can't go to work and she can't really so I'm here just being a dad and family is coming first and it's it's pretty painful for me because my whole year revolves around this this September September catapults me to work really really hard because I know that that's my prize that I can be gone and go hunting and have adventure and then everything kind of revolves around that but what I would say is I'm at a point now where I still may go to Wyoming, but I highly doubt it. I just don't think being 15 hours away from home is a good idea. So I'm going to try to get a medical refund through Wyoming and see if I can get my points back and get that $1,335 tag refunded. And then I can just probably draw that tag next year. And then I feel really bad that my friend Ryan is going by himself. But luckily we have a mutual friend in Wyoming who's going to be there that he can hunt with. So that made me feel better about it. And I think I'm just going to probably hunt close to home here in Washington and Idaho and just go out for a few days and then come back and take care of my wife. And and uh, I think that's probably the best decision I can do. I just wanted to kind of give you a hunt update that, hey, life is unpredictable. Family should always come first. I definitely struggled with being selfish and staying on the hunt versus coming home. It weighed on me every day that I was informed of my wife's situation and I was still out hunting so it wasn't the most fun I've had knowing that she was struggling and that she really was too loving to ask me to come home right away but I'm also very fortunate that we did close to 30 miles on that last day and made it happen basically I felt like there was almost a gun to my head. I needed to kill an elk. This may be my only elk hunt of the year, and we were out of elk meat. So I feel like I owe God a big, big thank you for blessing me. Although it was very challenging, it was very rewarding. It's a hell of a story. I mean, we literally, just to recap, we the temperature swings were 50 degrees plus. We moved camp six times. I drove my truck over 200 miles of the shittiest dirt roads ever. I put over 150 miles on my four-wheeler. I filled that thing up. It holds five gallons. I filled it up six times. I dented my tailgate by jackknifing my trailer. Um, Jacob's car skid plate came off and started leaking fluid in the middle of the desert. Um, I broke my bow, my bubble, my slider. I had to use my backup bow. We tried so hard. And we finally found a good area. If we'd been in that area day one, I think we probably would have been done earlier. But uh, that's hunting for you. There's ups and downs, peaks and valleys. And and that's why I love hunting. It tests who you are. That was a true adventure. Uh, I highly recommend putting in for Nevada. And I think that maybe someday I'll be back. I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah, things have changed. Hopefully I'll just be hunting some over-the-counter stuff here. And maybe I can get another bull. And maybe Alicia can heal up fast. And yeah, so I just want to do a podcast and entertain you on some fun stories. Things I learned about the elk over there was that they do rut way earlier than what I'm used to. And that they can run, but they can't hide. And so once they stop to hide, you have, you can get in on them. It's not like that where I hunt in Idaho. But that was pretty cool. Um, the size of the bulls, like I said conservatively we were hunting a 370 bull and the elk language was awesome when you have that many elk together you can hear all the sounds so if you're thinking about duplicating the herd i would really hammer the calf the calf call is pretty critical 
because those calves never shut up and the cows always come to the calf calls and when the cows come the bulls come and if you need someone to if you can't get the elk to come in then maybe have someone set up further back and just get the bull talking and sneak in and i think um just stay positive bring a backup bow don't squander any second i can't tell you that i in the 10 days i only took a two-hour nap once and that was just because we'd moved camp at 10 o'clock at night um but I hunted hard for every waking second of that hunt, and I put on so many miles on my boots, and I never gave up. And I think that's really what elk hunting is all about. That's why I love it so much is it's just a pure test of who you are. And uh, I'm not the great, greatest hunter, not even close, but I have the greatest effort, and that's what I can control in my attitude. So um, thanks for all your prayers for Alicia's surgery. It went 100% perfect. She's going to be in good shape. It's just going to take time to heal, and uh, we're going to figure out how to pay for this because my dumbass doesn't have medical insurance. We decided not to do it this year, and so we're probably going to have a $20,000 bill. It's going to hurt, but God will provide for us, and um, yeah, life is short. You know, since I've been home, Jason Harrison of Kuyu died, and I'm a Sitka guy, as everyone knows, but if you think about it, I was with Sitka when Jason and Jonathan started it, so I've met Jason several times, former NFL football player, family man, very bold, courageous leader, innovator, and a really good dude, and yeah, I think that's he's going to leave a pretty big void in the industry. I think he pushed the competition. I think he made Sitka better when he left, and I think that um, he's got some big shoes to fill, but besides all that, I feel terrible for his family. And I just hope that they can um, bounce back and that they can lean on God for strength as they mourn their loss and that his memory will live on. And I think that it will. And because life is so short, just make sure you tell everyone you love them. Enjoy those little moments with your family. Put that phone down and just be present and... uh, Don't squander a second in the Elk Mountains because those days are finite. You'll never know when you're going to be back. And uh, send me all the text, emails, direct messages of your success or your adventures and your stories. And this podcast will pick back up in October. Thanks for listening. And I'm going to finish with thanking my partners. You know, guys, Elk Shape is not easy to run while you have another business. And it takes a lot of hustle. But it is a brand that's about the elk hunting learning curve. It's a brand that's here to help people, noobs, and even veterans stay mentally tough, physically tough, and get the idea that delayed gratification is what we're all about. So I want to thank Hoyt Archery for being with me forever. And the fact that I have two Hoyt bows really helped me out, that backup bow. And um, their bows are the toughest in the world, and I put them through the paces. Josh Jones, Spokane Valley Archery. It's a local archery shop. He builds custom strings for all my bows. It's called Podium Archer Strings. You too can get your your bow built with his strings. You can ship your bow to Spokane Valley Archery. Just tell them Elk Shape sent you, and they will ship it back to you. And you won't have to retune your bow very often. I can promise you that. Easton Archery Full Metal Jackets. I shot a 340 spine FMJ. And I tipped it with a Grim Reaper Broadhead, three-blade pro series, also known as the Hades. The thing's devastating. And on the back end of my arrow is a boning era blazers, two-inch, with a three-degree offset. I was using some um, nocturnal knocks. They're not a sponsor, but that's what I was using. And uh, I love the Grim Reaper fixed heads. I just love them. Kinetrek boots are the shiz knit. For me, everybody's foot's a little different, but Kinetrek out of Montana... Those boots, and I was using the Desert Guides, they have this new traction on the bottom that's amazing. Those are my new favorite, favorite boots. I had like three pairs of Kinetrex, and I only wore the Desert Guides every day because they were just amazing. But check out the Hard Scrambles, and uh, they have quite a few options. They got some gaiters and some awesome Kinetrex socks that I was wearing every day. Sick of gear, Jonathan Hart, thanks for being loyal to me from day one. John Barclow, thanks for your help. And uh, I love Sika gear. Always have, always will. Vortex Optics. I just want to thank you guys for 
I use two different spotters. I use the Kaibabs as well on a tripod, and then I use the Razors 10 by 42. That's the greatest glass with the greatest VIP warranty. You break them, they'll fix them, no questions asked. Doesn't even matter if you bought your binos used or from someone else, they'll still honor it. And the Vortex Rangefinder 1000. Uh, XO Mountain Gear Pack, I can tell you right now, you don't need a pack frame for hauling meat out. You just bring your pack and you just remove the cover off and you put the meat. If you have a meat shelf, that's great, but you can just put it in the load sling and all your gear doesn't get blood on it and you can carry loads out with your gear and you don't waste a trip back to the truck. I'm rocking the 3500 and there's just everything's in a perfect place on that pack and it's so much lighter than Mystery Ranch, which is the pack I use for years. The pack alone is probably five pounds lighter than just a Mystery Ranch empty. Caribou Game Bags, synthetic, deboned meat. It's a no-brainer. Don't buy cheesecloth. If meat is the most important thing, which it is for me, then you need to invest in good game bags. Phelps Game Calls, we used the new Bugle Tube, the Backcountry Tube, and honestly, we only used it a little bit because we were not backcountry hunting. We used the big, last year's Grunt Tube. It just sounds... And we were hunting big bulls, so we needed to sound pretty big. And uh, that's the tube that we use primarily. And then obviously we were hunting some checkerboard. We were hunting some private and public mixed in. So we were on our Onyx hunt the entire time. I mean, we literally would charge phones all the time nonstop because our Onyx app was on almost 24 hours a day. I always was tracking my steps, looking at terrain features, checking, you know, Google Earth overlay as well as topography adding waypoints, and figuring out everything through the phone. Uh, Off-Grid Food Co., holy crap, my, I finally tested all your food, and I can tell you right now, the breakfast is the best, the Blue Raz, 600 plus calories in the morning, takes two seconds to eat in coffee, and you're out the door. And then my favorite meal is that Thai quail. It's delicious. Every day I was drinking Mountain Ops Ignite in my water, to stay alert and cover the miles. And so thank you, all my partners. You guys make this thing possible. Thanks for listening to Elk Shape Podcast. May God bless you in your next hunt. Stay safe. Tell your family you love them, and don't take a second for granted. Take care.